This is Coda Facto, the podcast where we interview high performers in sport alongside clinical psychologist Dr. Kylie Henderson. We unpack the challenges that these sports people face and overcome to succeed in their particular fields and link that to the challenges of society. Brought to you by Interwork. Interwork Australia. As a leading provider of employment, skills and support initiatives, Interwork Australia's group of businesses are dedicated to supporting individuals and businesses achieve their goals. Welcome to this episode of Coda Factor. Well, Dr. Carly, here we are for another episode. I've got Lockie Henderson today as a guest, an AFL great, a current player playing for the Geelong Cats. He's played 200 uh, AFL games, so uh, a bit of a legend. I'm pretty excited. Yeah, I'm super excited to hear how he's sustained his performance over these years. He's had some ins and outs of the game, and, and I really want to know what's kept him going. Yeah, we spoke to Simon Black uh, last week, and and I really love that podcast. Uh, you know, he had such a great advice from his mum about um, you know staying grounded, being authentic and genuine, and not getting uh, you know, too big for your own boots, so to speak. So, yeah, he's a former player and, and, and played, I guess, in a little bit of a different era to um, to what Lockie's going through now. So, it'd be interesting to see if some of the challenges that Blackie had to overcome are similar to the challenge that Lockie had to overcome. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder if there's any themes in, in how people keep their ego at check and how they do perform on the field. So keen to hear from him. All right. Well, let's jump into it. Stay tuned. Welcome to you down at Geelong there, Lockie. Cheers. Thanks a lot for having me, guys. No worries, no worries. I'm really excited about having this chat with you today and uh, with Dr. Kylie as well. Uh, you've had a fair AFL career, started off at the Lions playing uh, 15 games there, moved on to Carlton and played 102 with them and, and now you've been down the Cats for quite a few seasons and uh, you had a good win on the weekend. The Cats are having a, a, an awesome season right at the top of the ladder, so um, they'll definitely be very uh, prominent throughout the final series. Lucky, when you were in school, you were playing AFL and having fun with your mates, kicking the footy around. Um, did you ever think you'd go on to have a career like this? And how was that progression going from a schoolboy into being a professional athlete as you are now? Yeah, I, it, it came late for me. I was probably 16. A few of my mates had already made the uh, Falcons squad down here, the Geelong Falcons. And I hadn't really thought about it until probably year 10. I played a game in year 10 for Geelong College and, and, and went all right. And that's when it sort of started to started to happen for me and I started to get a few recruiters talking about me and, and things like that. So yeah, early on, I hadn't thought much about it. And then sort of through year 11 and 12 at school, I, uh, I started to realize that I was, a, I was a chance. And then year 12, I had a few had a few injuries and I sort of got told, look, you're, you're pretty good. You're going to get picked up at some point. So I sort of had that backing, which was nice. And and then to go into the AFL system, I obviously moved from Geelong and you said I was up at Brisbane for two years. And, and that was a big move as a 17-year-old. I, I I had to move out of home, obviously, and, and go up as a 17-year-old and, and live. And look, I was extremely lucky. And you had Simon Black on last week. And I lived with Blackie for six months. And he turned into a, a bit of a father figure for me up there for the six months. And, and still to this day, is a mentor that I use. And I'm sure I'll talk a bit more about him um, down the track. But yeah, I was, I was really lucky. I had, I had Blackie to sort of bounce things off. And then for the next 18 months, I lived with Josh Drummond, who sort of turned into an older brother. A little bit, uh, who I still stay in touch with today as well. So that made my transition a lot easier, and it, it made it in a way that I I could sort of speak because it it was hard to sort of move up there and and uh, and miss home and, and be homesick for that first year, which I I definitely was. Hey, we heard a little bit about Blackie's mum. Did you meet Blackie's mum? I did. Yes, we're actually the families have gotten pretty close, and, and 
my parents love Blackie like a son themselves and I did get to meet Fran which was which was very very special for me yeah yeah she's she's got a lot of wise words to tell do you get any advice from her uh no real advice my advice came from Blackie so in turn it probably did come from her because uh, it probably <laughs> yeah. just sort of goes goes down the chain but I've used Blackie a lot over my career I've 14 years now so I've called him throughout uh, whenever I've needed him so I'm just fascinated. So when you you only started playing when you're in year ten, what what did everyone notice about you then? No, I was definitely playing before that, but okay. I just sort of I wasn't I wasn't getting picked up by the rep teams back then. And sort of year eight and nine, a few of my mates started getting picked up by the Falcons and playing under fifteens and sixteens, and you sort of start to get noticed. And a few of my mates played the the firsts in year nine, and I never got to go and. I suppose I wasn't really thinking about it too much. And then I, I played a game in year 10 for the first, um, it's how it works for the APS in college. You, you play for the ones or the twos or the, the 10 A's. And I played a game and I actually kicked seven at Xavier, which sort of put me on the map a little bit. And there's a few recruiters there. And, and still to this day, the recruiters talk about that as sort of like, oh, okay, what's this Lockie Henderson all about? And, and that's sort of where it started. The wheels started to turn. Mm, that's pretty exciting. Yeah. I remember as a 14-year-old, uh, the NRL was starting to go professional at that time. And uh, and I was saying to my younger brother, I said, did you know that there's people out there right now that play rugby league just as for their living, as a job? That's all they do is just play footy. Amazing. And so I never actually thought I'd be in that position myself, you know, in, in years to come. And whilst it was uh, super exciting, the idea of playing footy for a living versus the reality is, is very different. So how did you adjust from just playing footy for fun to knowing that it's your job, it's, it's your livelihood, there's people dependent on you within your teams, um, the fans and everything like that? How did you go from the love of the game to being your job? I actually didn't deal with it very well in my first year. I was, I was homesick and I was lucky enough, I was in the AIS squad. It's called something different these days, but they have sort of 30 kids under sort of 16, 17s and we travel around and we had a sports psychologist with us called Rosie Stanimirovic who's still with the AIS and Rosie is still probably to this day the number one person that's got me through football. I still chat to her weekly at the moment but over the 14, 15 years I've known her, I've, I've used her and my first year at Brisbane there was actually a point where I was sort of homesick and not enjoying footy so much and we were working through a, a lot of different things with me and my perfectionistic nature and things. And she just said to me, why don't you just go out and do what you used to do as a, as a kid and get the, the love back? And I sort of thought about that for a little bit and I realised what I used to do was just go out by myself in the 50, in the Ford 50 and just kick goals. And I actually did that one afternoon at the Gabba. I just took a footy out and, and just ran around for 15 minutes and just kicked goals and pretended to be probably Nathan Buckley again, even though I was playing for Brisbane because he was my idol growing up. And <laughs> and that sort of brought my my love back and something so simple. Uh, and I've actually used it once in the in the recent past uh, to do the same thing and just to try and get that love of the game back. And I, uh, yeah, so answer your question, I actually didn't deal with it very well in my first year and I had a lot of good people around me which helped me and, and Rosie was definitely one of them who, the sports psychologist who I, I still chat to weekly at the moment uh, and I, I've chatted to over the whole 15 years starting from when I met her. Sounds like just pairing it back a bit, you know, sometimes you can get stuck in your own head and pairing it back to that fun that you had as a kid and that really works for you from the sound of it, Lockie. Yeah, I think you can, in professional sport, you can get lost in the fact that it is supposed to be fun. and I'm sure Dave can 
relate to that. It, it, you lose it very quickly and you can go into games stressing or you can worry about what other people are thinking or what the coaches are saying or what your teammates thought about the, the bad act you thought you did uh, on the weekend. And yeah, I think trying to find a way to get back to what the game is and it is a game that's supposed to be fun uh, although it is your job and it's a very serious thing and you're doing it for your club and your teammates and the fans and the AFL in a way as well. So, yeah, the the way I found is talking about it a lot but also pairing it back to that every now and again, just going out and understanding that just go back to what you used to do, which is just have fun. I think that's, um, that's kind of life as well. I mean, some of our listeners probably in the community are probably in the same spot, you know, sometimes overthinking it need to pair it back you know life is genuinely supposed to be fun as well as sport lucky i was looking at uh, your stats online uh, your physical stats and i saw that you're six foot five same height as myself and i also saw that you're 95 kilos which is literally 20 to 25 kilos lighter than i played as a front rower in the nrl <laughs> so um, same height but um definitely definitely different builds and I, and I always used to think about the um, the professional AFL players and how much running they must do at training. I know in an NRL game, uh, we have our GPS monitors on and we're usually clocking you know, between five, maybe 10 kilometers per game covering the field. But for the AFL players, they're getting close to half a marathon, aren't they, for those games? What's, what was your usual training schedule like? How much running was involved and, um, and what sort of cases do you, do you clock in a game? Yeah, so it's a little bit different. Uh, ranges pre-season we're trying to clock 30 to 40 k's a week um, in a big week but sort of around that 30 mark and then in season like for now we wouldn't even really get past 10 because it's just later on in the season and then in games I range I reckon about 14 k a game and then some of our bigger runners are probably maybe 15 16 Uh, the biggest I've seen I've done a 17 k game we we lost badly, so we were just uh, not sure if we're allowed to swear, swear here, but chasing ASS the whole uh, the whole <laughs> the whole game. And then I've seen a nineteen k game as well. So it, yeah, it, it usually ranges between that thirteen to fifteen k though is is usually normal. So you're obviously breaking yourself. You'd be um, chasing your tail the whole time and and trying to keep up. Where does your motivation come from when you're down and out? You're tired, or you maybe you're behind on the scoreboard. Is it purely the competitive edge to win the game? Is it personal achievement? You know, is it making others proud of you? Is it part of a bigger plan for you? Where does that motivation come for you to keep pushing? Everything you just said. Yep. But also I think when you're in a team environment, it's, it, the motivation comes from just not letting your teammates down. The fear of failure, not personally, but the fear of, fear of failure for your teammates is the, probably the biggest one. You obviously want to make your friends and family proud, but when you're out there in the middle of a game, and again, Dave, I reckon you can relate to this, is you just don't want to fail your teammates and your coaches and your team. And so when it you really are feeling buggered and you're cooked and you don't want to go and you're sore and you're tired and all those things, uh, you just always think about, all right, the mate next to you or the guy in front of you, okay, how can I make his, his uh, game easier? How can I make it easier for him to get what he needs to get done? It's pretty selfless, really. We sort of have to be in a team environment, I think. I think most most players that play a team sport for their in, entire sort of career or life have to be selfless in a way that uh, if you're not, it doesn't really 
go well for the team or yourself over time. You might get away with it for a couple of years or here and there if you're winning because winning sort of hides everything. But you have to be a selfless player to, to, to be in a team team sport, I think. Not that individual sports aren't selfless, but it's a, it's a little bit more going on when you've got uh, – well, I've got seven out of the blokes around me and, and four on the bench. So I've got 20, 21 others to, to worry about. And who are some of those role models that you looked up to? You mentioned uh, Nathan Buckley, a bit of a hero, and, and, uh, and Simon Black uh, was someone who's mentored you in the past. Who are some other players that you, you, know, you aspired to be like or you, or you learned a lot of? Yeah, well, just some uh, background. I was a Collingwood supporter growing up. Dad brainwashed me, so that's why it was Nathan Buckley. <laughs> You're blaming your dad. Yeah, I'll blame dad there. And then I was lucky. I, I walked into Brisbane and I had Nigel Lappin, Jonathan Brown, Simon Black, Luke Power. I had a had a big core group of older boys that I could look up to for all different types of reasons. They were they were different in their own ways. And then I went down to Carlton. I had Chris Judd to to look up to and and Cade Simpson and Andrew Carrato, those type of guys that did it did it another way. And then I walk into Geelong and I've got Joel Selwood and Harry Taylor and Corey Enright and the list goes on. So. I've had a lot over my career to sort of bounce things off and watch and there's different things I can take from all those guys individually and I've been pretty lucky. I've I've been around the traps and seen a few different teams, which is a good thing in a way and a bad thing in a way, but you know, the good things is I can I've played with so many different players, I've been able to learn and, and watch and see the, the different ways of going about it. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, Lockie, because we know now that as you're growing up you have multiple role models. You don't just select one and say, I want to aspire to be like that person anymore. We we used to do that kind of 10, 20 years ago, but you're really saying you you have multiple people, you looked at their strengths and you kind of emulated their games. Is that kind of what you're saying there? Yeah, I think emulated games in a way of sort of like the Jonathan Browns and the, and the, the guys that played my position, but more just... One thing, I'm a very negative person on myself, but one thing I think I've, I've learned over the time, especially sort of the last sort of five to six years, I've just learned from every person I've come in contact with and tried to learn from every person I've come in contact with. And I think that's where I've been lucky in. I learned that maybe a bit too late in my career, but to be able to just watch and see and understand that everyone's got a different way of doing it and there's not one right answer in how to be a good person, be a good footballer, prepare, things like that. And, and, and that's where I have been lucky to see so many different ways of doing it uh, from so many different people and clubs. I think that's one thing uh, I enjoy talking to other athletes or former athletes about is having that growth mindset and, and being coachable, taking setbacks as, as opportunities to become a, a better person, a better player being able to accept influence and leadership and direction from people around you and not necessarily thinking you always have, you know, the right plan yourself. You would have had to handle some a lot of setbacks along the way, you know, different injuries and you might have played the odd bad game, not too many, but I imagine. But uh, what sort of strategies did you have in place to handle those setbacks? It's evolved over the years. I, I don't think I dealt with stuff early on in my career, sort of the first half of my career very well. And Rosie has been a huge, huge part of my my career and, and, and trajectory and, and growth in terms of just being able to talk about it. I'm a, I'm a big talker. I even find myself now in this trying to just cut myself off and stop just saying too many words. So I've always been lucky in the way that I've, I've had Rosie there to talk about it and I've always been able to talk about it. But there's definitely times where talking about it hasn't worked and, and, and doing or just being 
present in the moment is is something that I've had to work on extremely hard as well. And 2016, I spent sort of a 12-week block of just learning mindfulness from a mindfulness coach just to be able to learn to be in the present because I live my life pretty much in the past if I'm negative or in the future if I'm thinking too far ahead and and just want to sort of get things done. So being in the present moment is something that I, I sort of really struggle with and one that I've had to really learn. And I spent 2016 pretty much learning that single-handedly because I needed to. And what kind of impact do you think that had on your game? Uh, on my game straight away, not not a, I don't want to say not a whole heap, but it, like on my life, it had a, had a massive impact. And I think that outside uh, life impact sort of then came into my game. And I know that, I know that in a way is the same thing, but it was more just trying to understand that in life, I needed to just under, I needed to just be a little bit more patient and a little bit more in the present and a little bit more not looking back at things and not looking too far in the future. And then over that time, I started to learn to be a little bit more relaxed when it came to footy. And I went through a few injuries in 2018 and 19 and didn't play a lot of football and didn't play great football either. And then got delisted at the end of 2019, which the delisting wasn't the bit that taught me that I didn't need to have an ego. The 2018 and 19 seasons and the injuries and things I went through sort of taught me that I can relax a little bit and I don't need a big ego. And I feel like personally that ego is one thing that just gets you in trouble in professional sport, but also in life. And I lost I lost that through the those seasons. And I think that's one of been, been one of the biggest changes in life and football for me for these last two years. Uh, I think it's a fantastic lesson to put that ego aside. And all the most successful teams I played in as well, whether it was, you know, the Queensland Maroons when we won eight series straight, it was always about treating each other as, as equal members of the team. And it was never about, you know, the, the most important player in the team or the most famous player in the team or anything like that. Because every player knew that if we were going to ever beat the Blues, you know, each of us had to rock up to our own individual roles to be a, that combined force. So I think they're always the most successful teams when you put that ego aside. Yeah, and it is. And it's one of the hardest things to put aside, I think, is your ego. It's it, it's actually quite difficult to just just really just put it aside and understand that you're you're not that big a deal individually. And <laughs> you're part of a team. As humbling as that might be. Yeah, and just and that either people aren't talking about you as much as you think or et cetera, et cetera. And, and it, it's a tough thing to do. Mm. Uh, you mentioned a few of those role models and, and I'm just listening to you talk and you, you're quite open about um, you know, accessing support and, and how important that has been for, for your well-being and, and also for your career. Have you had you know, some of those good role models lead the way for you like that? And you know, talking about mental health and well-being and needing support, it's always been such a stigmatized topic. So um, we love talking about it here at Wellbeing Code and we, we, we love normalizing that conversation. Who did that for you? I don't, I don't know who exactly did that for me. I could always talk to Blackie from early on. So I think Blackie probably made it without realising he was doing it, I think. I think it's just the sort of person he is. I think he just is such a good listener that I could speak to him from very early on, even as a 17-year-old kid who who wanted to come in and, and be the man and, and be and not be broken and all those sort of things. And then I think I was just lucky to meet Rosie when I did early on. Um, before I even got to the AFL, I, I knew Rosie. And then it was just a thing that I did was just talk to a psychologist. And it was never, for me, it was never really a stigma. Like the only thing that I could sort of say is that throughout my early career, my first half of my career, saying that I talked to a psychologist was still a little bit stigmatized. 
but it never stopped me from talking to the psychologist. It was just sort of something you didn't speak about. And over time, that just sort of changed with the whole mental health, I suppose you can call it movement a little bit because it's been the last sort of 10 to 15 years, it's become much more of a thing. I think what you're describing though is that she had such a positive impact on your career and it's kind of sad to think that you couldn't say much about it 10, 15 years ago, but now uh, now you're talking about it openly, like it is a really good asset to your performance. Yeah, I think I was lucky. Like to add on to the Rosie part, we actually had to see Rosie. Rosie went from AIS and then started working for Brisbane, which was just luck of the draw. So my first year, we actually had as first years an hour with her weekly, uh, which again, fast-tracked my uh, ability to just understand that, okay, well, let's just speak about things because we had to. And I think that was very lucky for me that I, I had to do those things, which was uh, which was stigmatised back then in 2008, but the Brisbane Lions did it well because they had sort of a good welfare department set up that they, they looked after us and made sure that we were doing those things. And then over those next sort of six to eight years, you sort of started to see that movement change and, and mental health become something that people were able to talk about. I guess it's really about increasing your emotional IQ, isn't it? To kind of match your performance. And that sounds like what you really developed over those years was um, a better understanding of who you are, um, a better idea about how to manage the setbacks, a better idea to how, of how to get out of your head. And all those skills are so important for your emotional IQ. Yeah, I don't want to claim that I'd learned it over those few years. I think it gave me a really good base to finally click into gear about two or three years ago. I probably still thought I was invincible through those times, but looking back on those times as a 20 to 25-year-old, I I still feel like you think you're invincible and you've got it all sorted, but I didn't really realise till I was about 28, 29 that those building blocks and foundations finally clicked into gear and finally worked for me. I understood a lot more about myself and I don't claim to even know all the, all the right answers now or, or myself perfectly now, but I think it just gave me good building blocks to, to be able to finally see the bigger picture later on, maybe eight to 10 years on down the track, uh, which, was, which was really handy for me now. Was that approach at the Lions using Rosie, was that commonplace across the AFL? Uh, to my knowledge, no, but I'm speaking for back then 15 other teams, uh, so I'm not sure really, but to my knowledge and, and for the other teams I've sort of seen and heard of, no, I don't think it was common. Sounds like such a, a wonderful initiative and, and um, I, I know clubs like the Lions, you know, have used the likes of Phil Jauncey and those sorts of guys and I've had exposure to him and, and he is fantastic. But um, Dr. Kylie always talks about those defensive strategies and the offensive strategies for your, your mental health and wellbeing and look, if you need a bit of support, it's there for you, but also it's good to get things off your chest, take weight off your shoulders and in turn, you know, you're going to be happier off the field, but you're definitely going to perform on the field too. So it'd be interesting to see how many clubs, I guess, are using you know, mental health and, and counselling services, psychology services for a performance tool to help help their players you know, feel and, and perform their best each weekend. Yeah, it's definitely a much bigger thing now. And the welfare departments that, that a lot of clubs have got now have grown exponentially in the, in the 14 years I've been around. And it's really good to see because... The young players need it, especially with social media and the things that go on this, this day and age. You, you're pretty much open to every single criticism you can possibly get. Whereas even back when I started, and 
this is the old. I'm I'm old now. When I start saying back when I started, but <laughs> you just did you you just didn't have those things. You could sort of go by and yeah, you'd, you'd hear the odd thing in the paper or read the odd thing in the paper, but social media wasn't really a thing back then. So how how do you deal with social media, Lockie? What what's your strategy? At my worst, I deleted it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At my best, which I'd say close to the last couple of years, I use it sparingly. I've got it sitting there just in case I need it for business because the business tool part of it is is huge this, this day and age. But I very rarely try to check it now. I've, I've got it sitting there. I've, I've got a, uh, yeah, I've got an account, but I, I try not to scroll especially and uh, mm. just check it in case there's something that I need to look at for, for business purposes. Yeah, do you think do you think other teammates are looking at social media and looking at the feedback still, or is that kind of the team strategy now that we ignore it? No, blokes definitely are, and everyone's got a different way of dealing with things. It's mm. it's like some people don't want to talk about things, some people do. Everyone's different, and there's no right answer for for any individual. If you want my opinion, my opinion is stay off it. It's not good for anyone. I don't personally think, and I haven't had good good uh, relationship with it over the time. So I, that's my choice. But I know boys that, that love it and, and it doesn't phase them at all. And that's great for them because it's I, they're, they're stronger than me in that in that scenario and those those instances. So that's fine. And I have just ways to that I work, work through things and they have their ways. And as I said, there's no right answer, but that's just the way I deal with it. Yeah, I think there's a lot to that though, because when we think about feedback and you spoke about listening and hearing from some of your role models, it's sometimes getting feedback from people that, that don't have any credibility in your life. It's it's not stuff that should stick. And I think what you've described is that you've got some really great role models that if they did give you feedback as as negative or positive, that you would hear that and try and change. And I think that's really tough on some of our listeners to be able to see social media as just people giving you feedback, but they don't have credibility in your life. So we have to ignore it. To be even more blunt than that, they just don't matter. Like there's a lot of people out there that are going to have a say because they can now and it just really makes no difference to your life. And that's sort of what you're saying, I think in a really nice way. And I might sound like a bit harsh here, but they just don't, they just don't matter. Like the nice things, the bad things, the people really close to you, tight inner circle, I think as you grow older, you realise uh, are the ones that matter and, and they're the ones that you want to hear critiques from and good things and bad things and everything in between. And that's where I think I find social media really hard. Like I try not to even look at or see the good things uh, because I try and stay as level as I can. And in a way that can be a, a negative, but the, staying as level and emotionally level as I can works for me. Yeah, good point. Good point. So, lucky professional AFL player, between training and playing games, you must have picked up some pretty serious injuries along the way. How did you fare with the injuries? Yeah, I've had a, I've had a fair few surgeries over my career. It actually all started with a, a toe injury back in 2011. I, I got a pretty bad turf toe and had to get about 75% of the cartilage taken out of my, my left big toe. And funnily enough, that's one of the worst things on my body. But from then on, everything started to go. I've ended up having about – I've had five knee surgeries on my right knee. Uh, three and six months, six months during that sort of 2018, 19 period, uh, two hip surgeries. I've got titanium mesh all through the top right side of my eye from breaking my eye socket. So, yeah, I've had I've had a few injuries over the time. I've they've sort of mainly been back half of year, so I haven't missed lots of games. But it's uh, it's definitely affected me over over the time. 
Did they link those knee injuries to the toe injury and, and your body was compensating or a bit off balance in different ways? Definitely early on. So after 2011, the, the next year I got osteoarthritis pubis, had to get a second hip surgery. And then at the end of the following year, I had my first knee surgery from just on my right side from overcompensating. So it just changed the, my gait, mm. the way I run. And so I run on the outside of my foot now. So then that just sort of changed everything. So for a couple of years there, I was, I was trying to just work out how to change it. And now the body's just worked it out and the pain stays in my toe, but it's just part, part and parcel of playing a professional sport. It is part and parcel. You're right. And, uh, and, and as an athlete, you sort of try to take it in your stride. But yeah, how challenging was it to hear of another injury, feel another injury and know that uh, you know, I've got this one month, six month road of recovery to get myself back on the field and, and alongside that, you know, there's a bit of uncertainty about your playing future. You know, am I off contract? Will I get re-signed again? Or am I just getting bloody old as well and that have too many years left in me? Early on, sort of that 2011 to 14 period, it, it didn't feel that hard at the time. It, it, I suppose maybe because you're, you're younger and you sort of feel like you've got a lot of left in the game. But the 2018-19 period where I had three knee surgeries in six months, that was, yeah, that was tough. That was really tough. I remember just not wanting to go into the club. And even when I went into the club, I'd, I'd get in at seven and leave by nine when the boys were rocking up. And that was my, a bit of my own choice, but also just to get it done, get all my rehab done and the, and the things I wanted to get done. And that was really tough. And then the pain and then just not getting better and, having to redo the surgery over and over again to try and get it better. That 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 one was one that I, I look back on and go, yeah, that was a really tough time. Not even the the broken eye socket, which was pretty painful and mm. debilitating for a good good few weeks was was as tough as that sort of six month period with the with the knee surgeries. So despite all of this pain, you you still go on to perform amazingly on the field. Have, have you got any tips of how you deal with this? We'd probably call it chronic pain. It's, it's been around for a while. Have you got any tips on how to deal with pain or put it out of your mind or what do you do? Uh, I don't really have any tips. I think you just sort of find a way. Like it's not trying to be tough or anything like that. Your body is a pretty amazing thing and your brain's a pretty amazing thing and you just find a way that if you really want to keep playing and get it done, you just find ways to be able to react to this the the pain that you get doing certain activities. And look, I suppose it's, it, it comes back to just the psychology of, of talking about it that I, that I built early on in my career. And I, I spoke about the platform that I built for myself. And I think that's what helped me the most, especially that 18, 19 period. I actually in that time, didn't speak to Rosie as much as I probably should have. But I think the foundations and the blocks that I built over that sort of time without realising it helped me a fair bit. I was still depressed and sad and and peed off and angry and frustrated and all, everything else in between. But I think the foundations I built sort of got me through that time and, and the people I had around me and close to me kept me positive and, and all those things and, and not hiding away from the fact of, hey, I'm, I'm struggling here. I've had three knee surgeries, I'm, I'm cooked, I'm worried, I, can I still play the game, can I still do all of that and just being able to continually talk about that and, and have the building blocks in the background was, was substantial for me. Yeah, I think that's, that's wise advice, I think, for anyone who's experiencing pain, it sounds like having people around you, being able to acknowledge the, the tough times but also knowing what you're there for. Like you, 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 it sounds like you really wanted to get yourself better. You really wanted to get back to the game. You had a goal. I think they're really good tips for people who might be experiencing that kind of pain. 
I suppose I just wanted to prove to myself that I could still do it. Yeah. You get doubt in yourself, which is the worst kind of doubt you get, but then you start to get outside doubt as well. And you, I couldn't hide away from that that doubt. And you just want to prove to the fact that you can still do it and you can still get there and you want to help the team as much as you can. And that's really what it came down to for me, I think. I always knew when I got injured, lucky I too had plenty of rounds of surgery. I had 10 rounds of surgery in my career. And I learned from the start that the more I threw into my recovery, my rehab, the more discipline I had, the more attention to detail, the better I felt about everything for one. You know, it took away a lot of that uncertainty, a lot of that anxiety about, you know, will I make it back and and in what shape will I be in when I do make it back? It took a lot of that anxiety away around, um, you know, future contracts and things like that. So I just found, you know, if I was really accountable with my rehab and recovery program, well, one, I came back a better player and I came back fitter, but two, it made that really uncertain period a little bit easier. Yeah, I think looking back on it for me, that in the moment, I was definitely doing that. And the attention to detail I'm not speaking to here because the attention to detail when you're injured is huge. But I actually probably flogged myself too much. I probably overtrained in that period because I was so worried about what you just spoke about. And and looking back, if if I ever got another injury like that again, I'd probably be a little bit smarter in the way I trained myself in terms of just flogging myself too much to exhaustion because I felt like I needed to do that because I think that had a negative impact on me. At the time, I thought it was doing a good thing for me because I'd, I'd stress less about the the shape I was in, et cetera. And again, I reiterate, I'm not talking about the attention to detail with the rehab of my knee, et cetera. It's just, I, I reckon I'd do it a little bit differently and I'd go a little bit more than less is more when it came to flogging myself because I think looking back, I just might have just cooked myself a little bit too much, especially when I came back to try and play. I was, I was pretty burnt out from overdoing things. I always found in my career as well that sometimes you're injured and you feel like there's nothing you can do to get yourself back on the park playing footy quicker. And instead of trying to um, think about that all day long, I thought about what can I do off the field? And I was able to you know, engage in a little bit of study or do a little bit more community work. Were things like that options for you when you went through those injuries too? Yeah, definitely. I started a business back then and went headlong into that and it didn't end up working, but it was a brilliant unicourse of just doing for me. So it essentially turned into, yeah, as I said, like a little unicourse that it failed, but I, uh, I learned a lot and it sort of put me in a good stead for, for future businesses that we're going through now. And I also started a podcast with Zach Tui back then. And again, that stopped, but we've started a new one since then with a bit of a change of pace. So yeah, at the time I was, I was trying to do as much as I could on the, on the outside. I was building a house at the same time. So I had a few things that definitely helped me through that period where I could switch off and, and go and do other things and, and actually feel like I was uh, accomplishing things on the outside. Yeah, yeah, it had a purpose it sounds like. Hey, so what do you think is going to be your legacy if you, when you're kind of rocking back on your, in your rocking chair? kind of old what, what will be the Lockie Henderson legacy uh, you stumped me there I've I never know thought it's about a it. very psychological question there's there's one word that it came it was on my 150 game banner and it's the word has sort of floated around when people talk about me uh, and my football and it's reliable mm. and if people just remember that part of me is just reliable when it came to a game of footy. I'm happy for that to be my legacy. As I said, my ego doesn't need to be any more than that. I don't need to be seen as some huge great footballer or that if if, if I'm seen as reliable on the field and reliable off the field um, just as much, then 
I think my legacy is, I'm, I'm more than happy with that. Yeah, I think that's a great characteristic and, and as you say, to have personally and professionally. So, excellent. Yeah. Hey, Lucky, have you read the book um, Ego is the Enemy by Rowan Holiday? I have got it here and I'm, I've actually just started it, to be honest with you. I've have got you? it over, sitting, it's sitting over there, yeah. I've awesome. actually been, my partner gave it to me. Yeah, he, that's a fantastic book. Uh, he's a fantastic author, actually. He's got a he's got a couple more around um, you know stoicism and, and different things like that that really um, spoke to me for all those things we we're just talking about, where you you get an injury sometimes, or you you play badly, you don't get selected, and a bit of an obstacle in your way or a bit of a setback, uh, and being able to get around those things or make the most of the opportunity or see the good fortune and, and maybe bad fortune. It really spoke to my mindset as an athlete. So I reckon you'll enjoy that book and, and him as an author. It's funny, the same sort of books when you're talking about this stuff always pops up a little bit and, and that's one that has been popping up a fair bit and I've, I'm getting around to it. I, I go through stages with reading. I, I love reading, but I'll, I won't read for months and then I'll just go, crazy for a couple of months so i'm getting there I've, i'm getting to i'm getting to it read one of the other books uh, the obstacle is the way and i think uh yep. i think you'll like that one too you have to get onto audible or something like that on the way to training yeah, or just, something just so i can listen to it there's another one i reckon you'll like dave it's called the zen in martial arts oh yeah uh, who, with one that i go so it's I'll, I'll i'll send it through to you nice thank you hey dave often talks about the um the pump up songs on the way to training have you got any of those not really. I'm I'm pretty random with songs. I can go from listening to Eminem to Ed Sheeran to love songs to all sorts of stuff. So I don't have anything in particular. Some of the things that pump me up is very strange. It's not hardcore <laughs> rock and roll or anything like that. So, what, what, uh, now, no. now that you've said that, we have to ask you what, what kind of strange things. One of my favourite songs ever is "My Heart Will Go On" by Celine Dion. So, <laughs> I, 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 I'm there's nothing to, wrong I'm not, with that. No, I don't. I didn't say there was. It's just, I, I, I love it. I, I've, I'm known to. Uh, I've actually got to jump in the car shower after this. So I might actually listen to it and pump it out. Uh, full voice. <laughs> I've got a shocking voice, so it's only ever by myself. But that, and then I, I love Eminem too. So, I've, uh, I'm quite strange with music. Is that part of your pre-game routine? Uh, I was sort of listening to how you talk about getting uh, your love of the game in front of mind to um, to enjoy your footy and play better footy. And, and I know for myself, um, before games, I used to love just listening to happy, upbeat music, smiling, having a joke, not not being silly and carrying on, but um, really getting that energy from music and my friends to, um, to get out in that field, pumped and ready to go for the kickoff. Yeah, for a big portion of my career, I was really, really set and scheduled and 36 hours out, I'd do the same thing. And the last few years, I've tried to relax a lot more when it comes to it and I sort of just do whatever now. Uh, I drove to the game yesterday the whole way, the hour and, hour and a half and in silence uh, the whole time and then sometimes I'll listen to upbeat happy music as well. So I, I try not to, I do a couple of things here and there that I try and stick to the same same sort of thing, which is around sleep and things like that. But besides that, I, I don't have a set routine of, of what I do. It's just however I'm feeling at the time and I try not to put too much pressure on myself that I should be doing anything at a certain time that'll make me play good footy because I've come to realise that the prep, the prep over the time for, for myself is, is not a big deal. And last year with, with COVID, you sort of learnt that prep's not a huge deal. It's two hours of your life. You've just got to get a game of footy done and no matter what happens before it, you can usually get it done uh, if you really, really put your mind to it. Yeah. Yep. It's a good strategy. Now, Lockie, I do have to ask you, are we related? 
So where do the Hendersons <laughs> go back to? In nearly every Henderson I've ever met, we've never ever been related. So I'm going to say no. I don't know <laughs> what it is without. I don't know what it is with our name, but no, I don't think we would be. It's a common name, but it, but it is partly Scottish. Are you partly Scottish? Yes, I am. I am yeah. Scottish. Aber- I actually did a, Aberdeen. I think it goes back to. Yeah, I can't remember the percentages. So I won't say percentages, but I, I had a bet with with Zach Tui, who's Irish and. I said that I was definitely part Irish and we said over 11%. I think I got 11.5% Irish. (laughs) So I I won that bet, but I was more Scottish. I think I was something like 30% Scottish. So something along those lines. The kilts might come out at some point. You never know. My mum would definitely love that. (laughs) (laughs) I might ask you a few shorter, sharper questions to get um, AFL fans a bit of an insight into your career quickly, just to steer us towards the end of this episode. Career highlight for you to date? Uh, <laughs> still a bit soon, but the grand final last year, obviously playing in the grand final was a good thing. We lost it, so I'll leave that at that. 2013 elimination final when we actually finished ninth and then got in and played Richmond. We had 95,000 there and we ended up winning it in a pretty, pretty amazing fashion. And the noise before that game, I don't think anything will ever get close to it. And I've got a few guys, Sean Grigg, who's at the footy club now, played in it as well. So that that definitely was a it was a career highlight. And then first game, always a, always in there as well. Nice. Your funniest teammate at any of the three clubs you've been at is um, have you had a bestie or a funniest teammate that's put you in good spirits at training? Dennis Armfield was very funny at Carlton, and so was Jared White and Simon White together. They always used to uh, make fun of me, but it was it was pretty funny. <laughs> Uh, good. And your toughest opponent, who did you admire the most or just fear coming up against? Uh, it's a threefold one, this one, but Josh Kennedy, Lance Franklin and Jack Rewalt are the three. Uh, definitely the hardest I've, I've played against. How much was respect a big thing for you as an opponent? You know, um, just holding those sort of players in such high regards, understand yeah, how much of a threat they are to you. Did you find that was a big thing for you? Yeah, definitely. I As I've gotten older, I've actually enjoyed playing on them more and more. I'd I probably stressed and, and worried a lot early on in my career playing on those guys, but uh, I got to play on Tom Lynch yesterday and had Jack next to next to us as well. And the respect for me is a huge part of it. I, I don't see footy as seriously as some people. Again, rightly or wrongly, everyone's got a different way of going apart about it. I was we were having a good laugh at the start of yesterday's game because because Jack and and Tom were getting into blitzy at the start of the game, and I was laughing along with it. So I, I enjoy that part of the game more and more as I've gotten older and, and tried to have a bit more fun with it over over the time uh, with things I've learned and, and, and losing those th- all that stuff that I, I spoke about with the ego and, and relax, relaxing a little bit more when it came to footy. And I always think back on those um, influential people or quotes or sayings or moments in my career. Have you got one of those that stands out to you that was a big part in shaping your career? Not one that stands out. I, I've got a, a folder in my notes on my phone that's just called learnings and anything that I feel hits me uh, or I want to reread or watch, I stick in that folder. So there's nothing that's that's out there per se. There's one that, now that I think about it, there's one that very early on that Rosie and I came to and it's, you don't need to be perfect. Uh, and that's saying it to myself. Uh, perfectionism is a big part of my, my nature and one that sort of sticks with me. So 
yes, in answer, in the long answer to your question, I didn't think there was, but that's one that I always try to stick back to is if I feel like I'm trying to be perfect again, I, I always go back to that moment if we wrote it on a little A4 piece of paper and I think I've still got the piece of paper somewhere hidden away that had a big circle around it and then little dot points coming from it, but it was said, you do not need to be perfect and that's aimed at myself. Mm. Such a powerful thing, isn't it, Dr. Kylie? Journaling to help clarify your thoughts and uh, you know, remember your strengths and what's happened that day and your learnings. Absolutely. Especially when you see it in black and white, it's it's kind of so obvious. It's probably been with you, Lockie, for your whole life, that perfectionistic thinking. But when you see it in black and white, it, it, it makes it real. You can really probably deal with it a little bit differently. Yeah, it does. And it's just touched on journaling there. I'm, I'm getting better at journaling. I'm a... I'm a lazy person at heart sometimes, so journaling is quite tough for me sometimes, but I, I'm working with a, another guy called Nan Na Baldwin who's made a big influence on my professional career and he, uh, he's got me to journaling a fair bit and I've, I, I'm getting better and I, I definitely agree with that notion is when you see it on paper or you look back on something you've written, you're like, oh, yeah, okay, I forgot that because it's very easy to forget things, but it, you can't forget it if you've written it down. Yeah, and poor old Siri, she doesn't really do journaling that well. So when you <laughs> when you're kind of feeling like you want to write it down, you get Siri to write it. it just doesn't come out how you thought it would. So there's definitely no, power in the pen. <laughs> it is big power, even though I get sore handwriting, but that's okay. Well, Lockie, I've loved listening to all your stories today and hearing a bit about uh, Lockie Henderson and uh, how he progressed into being a professional AFL player. Some of those ups and downs, handling setbacks. One question we always finish each podcast on and we ask our guests, we're really big on being proactive about your well-being and your mental health and and uh, I'd love if you could share with our listeners um, you know, one or two or three tips on what Lockie Henderson does to be proactive with his mental health and well-being. Yeah, uh, one I've only learned sort of the last few years is, is sleep is a massive part of it and I listen to a podcast with Matthew Walker. I think it's on Joe Rogan. I think Joe Rogan interviews him, um, the Joe Rogan Matthew Walker. It was a while ago. And that sort of changed my thinking. I used to think that I could get to sleep at 10.30, 11 o'clock and wake up at 8 and, and I was fine. And I probably was fine in myself, but I've realised now I'm, I go to bed at 8, 8.30 now and, and get a lot longer sleep and sleep makes a huge difference to the way I react to things or, or see things or, or think about things. So that's one big and then talking about it always helps for me. I, I sometimes talk too much and try to explain, over-explain things, but that is one thing that I've I've always been able to. I, I've got a good mate that for years now, if there's any everything going on, we, we call each other and we just say, all right, I'm venting. And then off you go and the other one just sits there and, and listens. So they're the two main things that I think for me has, has helped me the most. And it's taken me a large part of my career to work that out. It, I wish I had worked it out when I was 21, 22, but I don't think I really worked it out till I was 28, 29 and I'm 31 now. So it takes some time and I think the less I beat myself up, the better I am for it. And I, I like to beat myself up and I'm trying to learn not to as much as well. So that, that might be the third thing. I love it. I think they're pretty valuable tips uh, yeah, for advice. us in the studio here and all our listeners as well. Well, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and, and being so open about your career. I've absolutely loved it. Dr. Harley, once, once again, thank you for being our co-host today. Thanks, Lockie. I've really loved hearing about your psychological journey and particularly how you've built on those building blocks. So congratulations and I look forward to seeing you in the grand final. Hopefully. Thank you very much for having me, guys. Okay, thanks, Lockie.
Well, Dr. Collard, that was a great podcaster. As I'd hoped for, he's an AFL legend and uh, has some wonderful stories there about how he's handled different setbacks. He had quite a number of injuries and, and he's really open about how much those injuries knocked him around. But uh, it sounded like he had a great support network around him. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it just really shows you it's it, your psychological health does matter. It, it mattered for him during the injury time, but, it, but it's become even more powerful for him in the last three, four years, he says. And how fantastic of the Brisbane Lions uh, during Lockie's early days and he had access to a to a psychologist that he's actually stuck with over all these years and it must have helped him enormously in, in his personal life but also his professional life as well. It'd be great to see other businesses and, and especially other sporting codes adopt the same sort of uh, initiative. Yeah, it sounds like it was mandated. It was just something everyone did. So the, it took the stigma out of it when there was, as he said, uh, quite a big stigma about mental health. So I think that's really powerful to just say everyone does it. We, we all need that psychological support and performance support it helps us as he said in his personal life and professional life and it's just great to be so proactive too you know not just what not waiting until um someone's really struggling having off-field issues or playing bad footy it's it's being proactive and getting those things off your chest the weight off your shoulders yeah actually you're right about that because even when he was injured and you'd call that a crisis point in your career that was the time where he probably didn't speak enough to somebody and he was open about that so Mm. You're right, it was a really proactive approach, but he had the building blocks as he described them. We're seeing a real uh, pattern here, I guess. We're lucky with these couple of guests we've had where Simon Black is so open and and, uh, upfront and honest about his mental health and wellbeing and caring for others. And then that's uh, now reflected onto Lockie and and his career. And I'm excited to uh, interview someone down the track who's been uh, mentored by Lockie and had the same sort of experience he had. Yeah, absolutely. I I was really fascinated by his listening and his role modelling and he certainly listens to everybody and sees a lot of people as role models and and takes little parts from their performance to help him to improve and be better. This episode was brought to you by another high performer, our sponsors, Interwork Australia. With a 1,000 staff across the country, the Interwork Australia group has local networks, national reach, and decades of experience that you can tap into to help achieve your goals. Visit interwork.com.au. Well, that was fantastic. I'm looking forward to the next guest. I'll see you then, Dr. Carly. See you then, Dave. Bye.